They had these councils and round tables and the humans were always like trying to get their attention and do mighty deeds or cut themselves and bleed to try to get favor from the Roman gods. Listen, from the Greco-Roman gods to even the emperors to themselves to even the family structure, peace, power, honor, and even love were experienced through fear and overpowering the voices you don't like. house of the Lord on this rainy Sunday morning. Anybody here, you guys, anybody like the rain? You like the rain? I do too. I don't mind the rain at all, especially early in the morning when it's raining and I got a good cup of coffee and you're sitting there and watching it come down on the window and oh, it's a good, it's a good, it's a good day. It's a good day. Um, so I love that. I love that I get to be with you all this morning. One quick announcement and then we're going to jump into today's message. Uh, it is this. We are doing a podcast series that uh, is going to coincide with this sermon series. And what we're doing is we are answering questions that you all turn in from the different campuses. And so as you're listening to the sermon, and as God is speaking to your heart, if you're going, I don't understand or this doesn't make sense to me, and you want to write a question down, you can write it down. Turn it in at the end of the service when you turn in your Next Steps cards. And on that Next Steps card, we'll get it, we'll look at the questions, and we'll kind of like boil them down to the primary things that are coming our way, and we'll answer them. So this last Tuesday, what we answered on the podcast was this, in relation to the sermon from last week. How do you love someone who isn't living a life you approve of? That was a fun question to talk about. So we talked about that on the podcast last Tuesday. The second question, we boiled it down to three questions this last week. The second question that we talked about was this. What does it look like to love yourself well? What does it look like to love yourself well? We talked about that last Tuesday. And then this third question that we ended up answering or talking about uh, this last Tuesday was simply this. What does it look or feel like to experience love? What should it feel like to experience love in light of last week's sermon? So that was really fun to uh, use the podcast as a platform to answer questions that you all have. Highly encourage you. You can go on iTunes or Spotify or whatever uh, tool you use for podcasts and just look for the Made for More podcast. And we're going to put each of these, so all the questions you turn in from each week, um, we can't do all the questions, but we can boil them down to the main ideas and try to answer those. So do write out your questions. If you have things on your mind, put them down, turn them in at the end of the service, and uh, we'll do our best to answer them. All right. With that in mind, let's jump into today's message. Uh, again, just kind of a warning up front. This is, we did, we did the opening message, and this one also is going to be a little more heavy information. I know, I know, I know, I know. It's a rainy Sunday morning, and it's the early service, and, you know, in fact, uh, even this morning coming in, I, my wife and I were talking, this is a normal Sunday where people are like, I think I'm going to get a cup of coffee and just tune in online, so... Hey, thanks for not coming, sitting at home, there's a little sarcasm, and drinking your coffee on a normal Sunday morning. Well, I still love you. I love you. Pastor loves you. Thank you. But, um, 
But it's true, man. So I need you. I need you to do your best to just like gear up that brain of yours, get those synapses firing, because we're going to have to do a little bit of thinking. Even Kathy and I were talking yesterday about the sermon, and she's like, "That's you probably shouldn't use that word. It's probably a little too academic. Trying to, so I'm just warning you up front. You're going to have to think today, I love you a ton, especially since we're going to be so countercultural with this whole idea of what is love, what actually is love as God defines it, um, especially as it, God defines it in relation to how the world is using it. Okay, so with this in mind, quick review, then we're going to get into today's message. So big ideas. If God is love, right, if God is love and all that abide in love abide in God, if that's true, that's what Scripture teaches, we better know what love means. Right? If God is love and all that abide in love abide in God, 1 John 4, 16, we better know what love actually means. Another way to say it would be like this. If love is, we talked about this last week, if love is the greatest of an exhaustive list of virtues. 1 Corinthians 13, that whole section. Love is the greatest of an exhaustive list of virtues in the Bible. We better know what loving others actually looks like if it's the greatest of these. We talked about this last week too. The definition of love has spiritual warfare all over it. All over it. See, everybody agrees the church should be loving, but when culture says the church should be loving, they have a very different version of what the love of Jesus actually is that the church should be doing in their minds. Do you get it? There is nothing, there is nothing Satan would like more than for you to interpret love in a way that isn't actually the nature or heart of God. There is nothing that the enemy would like more than for you to interpret the idea of love in a way that isn't actually the nature or heart of God. The enemy wants you to be secure in your lie. He wants you to be secure in your lie. So to boil it down even tighter yet, there is a war over what love means. And there always has been. We're going to see here in a little bit. All right. We are in week number two. We are in week number two. Week number two of a long series. It's going to be a long series. Uh, ten weeks total. This is week number two. Designed to define what love actually means. So even today, I am going to leave you with gaps on purpose, because I can't cover everything in one sermon, right? So just know that. So even some of the questions you turn in, we're going to try to answer them, but you might find from the podcast even that we're going to answer them even clearer in weeks to come as we unpack this even more. I want you to know, I want you to know what it means to love your neighbor and yourself well, Luke 10, 27. I want I want to understand, and I want you to understand as well, what loving God actually looks like in daily living, Mark 12, 30. I even want you to know what it looks like to love your enemies well, Matthew 5, 44. I want to pause for just a moment. Um, and I want to offer just a mountain of grace to people that have experienced deep pain at the hand of someone who should have been loving. 
I mean, man, if you've ever been through a divorce or abuse, I mean, in all honesty, some of you maybe have grown up in homes where the very hand that was supposed to protect you hurt you. The very hearts that were supposed to guard yours pulled yours out and laid it on display, you know, just pain. From the very vehicles that were supposed to display love, you have felt deep pain. I want to just pause and acknowledge people that are in that spot. And I want you to know you're not alone. And the false implementation use of love that you have felt or abuse of it that you have felt that's left scars in your heart, I want you to know my goal is not only that you see love clearer, my goal is that you become the kind of people who can receive and produce a right love, a love that can even heal. That's what I want for you. Now, this kind of misuse of love actually goes back a long time, so bear with me. Let me just walk you through some of this. In the Greco-Roman world leading up to the time of Jesus, so uh, there was a million things that were taking place um, in the world as they knew it prior to the time of Christ coming onto this planet. And what we find in history, for those that like their Roman history, I love Roman history. I actually have done uh, post-grad one-off classes in Roman history just because I find it interesting. That wasn't even tied into a degree because it's super interesting to me. Uh, all the complexities, geopolitical stuff that was taking place. So leading up to the time of Christ, what happened in the Greco-Roman world, like the, not just 20 years, 30 years, but even hundreds of years leading up to the time of Jesus, that part of the world was very divided. Maybe the way to say it would be they were tribal. Not tribal like, you know, South African tribal, but tribal as in like my group, my people, my small little community, and they were all warring with each other. I mean, you couldn't even travel between one community and another without high risk of being robbed or murdered or hurt. I mean, constantly in this tribal warfare leading up to the time of Jesus, there were people that were, I mean, my goodness, the, the sexual abuse and the taking and the burning of homes and the pillaging. I mean, there was so much suffering that happened prior to the time of Jesus. Now, what ultimately happened is a Caesar came into power. And this would have been 27 B.C. Caesar Augustus, the, the prince of peace, if you read Roman history like Tacitus and Josephus. And he solved all of the tension that was happening in the culture. Right, So even right now in our modern day and age in the West, right now in America, it feels like there's a whole bunch of different pockets of people that are at war with each other. Well, if you continue to remove a general law and a general order, that tension's going to grow into actual fighting, actual warfare, actual bloodshed. That's where the Greco-Roman world was prior to Caesar Augustus, especially in 27 BC. This is how he solved it. It's called the Pax Romana. Anybody here ever heard of that, the Pax Romana? It's literally Latin for Roman peace. It wasn't a sharing of common love. It was a sharing of common fear. So this is how he did it. And this is really important to know. The way he brought peace to all that was going on is he literally slaughtered and killed anybody that didn't agree with him. 
Within the greater political system, if there were political parties that were even Roman, but he couldn't slaughter and kill them because they're his people, they were Roman, then he would create laws and policies to quiet them down and control them. I mean, the way Roman peace, the prince of peace that was given to Caesar Augustus, the name that was given to him, and the way he achieved peace is by literally controlling everyone through fear and bloodshed. Like he became the most powerful person and then all of a sudden everybody else gets quiet because they're literally watching Uncle Joe, who pushed back, hang on a tree and burn alive to light a road at night. I want you to think of it maybe a way to make this hit the heart even tighter is uh, imagine a home, uh, a very abusive, unhealthy home. And the kids are at war with each other and they're fighting back and forth and they're yelling and they're chasing each other and they're maybe throwing things at each other and uh, it's getting way out of hand. And the dad walks in who's like an abusive, alcoholic, unhealthy individual and he just beats everyone. And he goes back out to his room and sits down in his chair and cracks another out of a six-pack and turns the game back on and the house is really quiet. Why is the house quiet? Because there's common love? The house is quiet because there's common fear. That's how Rome got control. That's how Rome got control. The idea of peace, this is important, the idea of peace and power was woven through all of their society, okay? So bear with me. From the Greco-Roman gods, okay, so don't miss this. From the Greco-Roman gods, literally from the gods themselves, how they demanded peace. So you remember back when you were in school and you were studying like the Greco-Roman gods of the past? And they're like these, these people that they like look at humans with like this superior, like we're superior and you're nothing, you know, and they had these councils and round tables and the humans were always like trying to get their attention and do mighty deeds or cut themselves and bleed to try to get favor from the Roman gods. Listen, from the Greco-Roman gods to even the emperors to themselves, to even the family structure, peace, power, honor, and even love were experienced through fear and overpowering the voices you don't like. Even the way husbands treated their wives. Peace was through power, not through love. Peace was through common fear. Honor and respect was through common fear, not through common love. All right, now I want to pause for a moment and I want to do just a little bit more work to really lay the stage for this. I have a whole lot more written about this. If you're curious, you can email me. I wrote a paper on this time in history and how it correlates with today. If you want a whole lot more, you can email it to me and I'll send it to you. But a quick history work. Many times over, this is not new for humanity, to want peace by everybody submit to my idea. This isn't new. I mean, like, if you work your way through history, honestly, from the heathen Mesopotamian kings of old to Genghis Khan to Adolf Hitler, listen, it is not new for humans to want peace. Like, I'll give you peace, but the way you're going to get peace is to lose all your freedoms and submit and give everything to me. This is not new for humanity. 
It's innate in us to even want to be like afraid of this for sure. I mean, like when you look through history, whether it's the Mesopotamian, you know, heathen kings of old, or you move forward, you know, with Genghis Khan, Radolf Hitler, whoever you want to pick, right? When you look through history, they leave a wake of destruction and their moments of powerful societal peace were done at bloodshed. It's woven into us. I mean, like it's also really important as a good researcher, you want to look at art at times in history. So art can speak a lot about a people group. You want to know what people value? Watch the movies they make. Read the books that they write. Pay attention to the poetry. And you'll see a ton of what people value and what people fear. Watch a Disney movie today versus a Disney movie from 1950. And you'll see how culture, what they like and what they push is changing. You learn a lot from the arts. And I was thinking about this too. So like the books, even like modern books and modern stories that have become well known. Think of the dystopian works. Now, what do I mean by dystopia, right? Dystopia, like utopia, everything is awesome. Dystopia is like everything is peaceful, but there's something really sinister and dark making this all happen. It's like an awkward, broken, dark piece. And our literature is loaded with dystopia. I mean, even think of recent stuff, 1984 by George Orwell, right? Like more modern history. Fahrenheit 451, The Handmaid's Tale, The Road, Brave New World, Blindness, A Clockwork Orange. Um, think of Never Let Me Go. Think of The Time Machine by H.G. Wells. Think of The Hunger Games. Think of The Giver, The Stand, Lord of the Flies, Ready Player One, right? To hit even more modern stuff, right? Here's the reality. Even inside of us, we know that peace through something sinister and dark that just controls and takes away freedom, we know innately that's not the way it should be. We know it's the way it shouldn't be. From the most secular art that's made, it's in them to know that that's not the way it should be. It was in this, right? So it was in this type of dystopian, so like dystopia, a utopia, everything's perfect, but dystopian, it's all like perfect, but there's something dark and off and sinister underneath it all, like the Hunger Games or whatever it might be, right? It was in this type of dystopian geopolitical context, place in Roman history, that Paul writes the very first part of what we're going to study. 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. Now, okay, hang on a minute. I want you to imagine in your mind, right? So the teachings of Jesus would have preceded even this text that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. But I want you to be very aware of the message that Jesus was preaching and how radically countercultural it is, right? So can you imagine a Roman soldier maybe sitting on a horse, walking through a community to make sure that they're peaceful. And this letter is read to the church in Corinth, and maybe he overhears it, or at least the words have been shared, right? If not that, definitely the teachings of Jesus. And he listens to this idea that love is patient, love is kind. Can you imagine a politician 
right? Trying to work the laws and work the rules to make sure that they have the power, that they're in majority, that they can take control. A politician hearing that the primary first mover of this list of virtues is love is patient and it is kind. Can you imagine on the opposite side of society, the impoverished immigrant who has nothing, he has not been treated with kindness, That time in history, and all of a sudden, here's love is patient, love is kind. Can you imagine the abused wife? Her whole life, she has seen the Greco-Roman gods control, might, power, abuse, honor, and respect, and love are like the Greek gods down. And then that's mirrored with the emperor, and then that's mirrored in the home. And all of a sudden, she hears that love is supposed to be patient and kind. Can you imagine the sex slave, which was very common at that time in history, or the homeless leper hearing this for the first time, love is patient, love is kind. It was radically countercultural to think of love as working to the benefit of others rather than having them submit to you. Now, Hold on. I get there's a whole lot of questions that could spur from this, but I want to just open like this primary idea. If you forget everything else from today, don't miss this. Real love works to win hearts. Real love works to win hearts. You want to win hearts. Maybe a way to say it would be this. This is the way I've been teaching it to my kids. Love is doing good unto another independent of their ability to reciprocate or do it back. So we're going to do good to people even if they don't have the capacity to do good back to us. We're going to treat people with a right kind of honor even if they don't have the capacity to reciprocate it back to us. And the way this is aimed in the text is every power group and culture is supposed to do this. Because right now what happens is you sit in the room and you might think of the other political party and go, they need to do that. You're right, but so do you. Right, it is a a winning of hearts, it's to win hearts. Uh, Maybe another way to say it, would be like this. We want to win hearts, not just arguments. We want to win hearts, not just political power. We want to win hearts, not just civil majority. We want to win hearts. We want to win hearts. We want to win hearts. I know what some people are probably thinking right now is, um, but Pastor Mike, What do we do with people like violent criminals? Should we not take power over them? Yes, we should. I mean, the reality is if there's somebody that's extremely unhealthy and they're really dangerous, you should stop them from causing harm to another. That's absolutely right. Love is not open permission. But let me be really clear. The world is complicated And sometimes loving others requires stopping them. Let's be honest about that. Sometimes loving others requires stopping them. If you have kids, if you have, 
Like teenagers in your house, you know there are times the most loving thing you can do is engage and stop what's happening. However, I would say this, however, forgetting the prime objective of love, which is ultimately to win the hearts. The prime objective is not just stop a person. The prime objective is win hearts. That's why Christians absolutely should be police officers. And Christians should, that's okay, right, to join, be a part of the police force, be a part of stopping what's evil and wrong. But it's also awesome to have police officers or to have ministries that happen in the prisons because the end game is not just stop them. The end game is save them. Do you see the difference? We don't just stop, we save. We're after the hearts. Forgetting the prime objective of love while interacting with others is forgetting the nature of God. If we don't take it all the way to try to win hearts, we don't go far enough. See, a lot of the problems right now with even really conservative, glorious Christians, you're really good at wanting to stop what's evil, but you don't work hard enough to go to the win heart place. It's not stop. It's not give them permission or stop them, right? It is speak truth and win hearts. Um, I was talking with somebody the other day and they were asking me about this a little bit. And I said, well, there's really two questions. There's really two questions that I could ask you. Um, The people that you know that are lost or don't know the Lord, the first question is, do they know that you care about them? If the answer is no, you got to work on that. And do they know what you believe? Those coexist. It's not, they know what I believe, but they don't know that I care about them. Or they know that I care about them, but they don't know what I believe. It is, do they know that you care about them? And do they know the truth that we believe in? Those have to coexist to get this right. Jesus didn't come being kind and healing people and never sharing truth. Jesus came as this ocean, glorious wave of love into culture and was really clear about what is objectively true according to God. So the question is, right now, because I know there are people right now in this room or watching online, your natural disposition as a person is you love really well, but you're really bad at sharing the truth. And there are some people in this room, you're really good at sharing what you believe and you're really kind of poor at loving people well. They have to coexist. I would just remind you how Jesus came. He didn't come to enslave us. We were already enslaved to sin. Jesus came to win our hearts. Uh, I would take this maybe even clearer and say, from prisons to parliamentary halls, from the schoolyard to the backyard, we want to win hearts and do so by helping people see what is the ultimate good for them. Those must coexist. I mean, here's the deal. People will not like you because you are Christian. It's going to happen. But you must work to try to win their hearts in all that complexity. I'm going to invite Alyssa up and we're going to be done in just a few minutes. Okay, so again, each of these weeks build on each other. So the initial thought, really in all honesty, as simply as I can say it is this. Real love is first patient and kind. 
It is a winning of hearts. It is a winning of hearts. It is a winning of hearts. If you're missing the objective of winning a heart, you're missing the heart and objective of Christ coming to this planet. It is a winning of hearts. Winning of hearts to something very specific. And we're going to talk about that next week. I was thinking about the, uh, the news the other day and just watching um, you know, people screaming over the top of individuals as they're trying to share ideas. You know, I won't listen. I don't care. I don't. I'm just watching like the chaos continue to increase in this world. And I want to acknowledge it is incredibly complex. But to those of you that are out there that really want to honor the heart of Jesus, do not forget. You have to include what you believe when you're engaging with others. And for those that are out there and you're pushing really hard what you believe and you're getting more angry at all the brokenness you see around you, do not forget. You, you have to show that you care. And the enemy wants you to feel like you're stuck in this spot where either you are sharing truth clearly and boldly or you're loving them, being kind to them. And the reality is Jesus wants you to have these both coexist in how you approach the world. And let's acknowledge that's harder. Have you ever like thought in your prayer life, Lord, why is it the right way is so often the more complicated way? So I'll ask you, the people that need the truth in your life, in your spheres of influence, do they know that you care? Do they know what you believe? Do they know that you care? Do they know that you believe? You're supposed to lean into both of those things as you go out into the world. I'm going to leave you just with scripture. This is 1 Peter 5, 2 through 4. He's actually talking about like leaders, like Christian leaders. But listen to the heart of this. Okay, so I just want to leave you with Bible alone. I love the word of God. Be shepherds. Listen to the metaphors that he's using towards leaders. Be shepherds, shepherds, shepherds. Of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing. As God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples of the flock. How do we lead well? We model this to the people around us. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive a crown of glory that will never fade away. 
we cannot forget from the prime example, real love is first patient and kind. It is a winning of hearts. Love works to win hearts. So in your, man, in your sphere right now, your friends, if you're in school, high school, junior high, middle school, if you're at work, the people that you work with in your neighborhood, the question is, you are trying to win their hearts away from the enemy. Not just make it illegal for them to do the things that don't honor God. You want to win their hearts away from the enemy. Parents to your kids, you want to win their hearts. Coworkers, you want to win their hearts over. So when Jesus shows up in this world and he hangs on the cross and his life comes to an end before his resurrection, to some of his final words, he says over the people killing him, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He refuses to give in to their ways of life, but he also refuses to use his power to just decimate them. Jesus' goal is to win hearts. Your goal is to win hearts. Now, the $10 million question is win hearts to what? That we're going to start talking about next week. I love you. If you would, grab the Next Steps card. They're in the back of the chair in front of you. And I'm just going to ask this question. So grab the Next Steps card, pull them out. Whatever God is doing in your heart, write it down. If you need to make a decision, if you need to engage, maybe it's like, hey, I need to have a conversation with a friend. I need to send an encouraging text message. For somebody out there, maybe it's like, you know what? They, this person needs to know what I actually believe. You know, I've been hiding it away. I'm, I always want to do the kind thing, but my kindness, I've misinterpreted as quietness of what I believe. Kindness is not quietness about what you believe. It is sharing what you believe in a way that's winsome. So just as the Lord is working in your heart, write on the Next Steps cards. I love you. Thank you. Go. Thanks for listening to Sunday Sermon on the Made for More podcast. If you are not connected in a church community, we would love to connect with you. Send us a message on social media or fill out a digital Next Steps card at EncounterTrinity.com slash Next Steps. Thank you.